Hello and welcome to The Stushy, the Scottish politics podcast from DC Thompson that helps you be better briefed. I'm Andy Phillip and on this episode I'll be joined by Derek Healy, Adele Merson and Justin Bowie to examine and explain the last week in Scottish politics. But first, a summary of the week's biggest national and international politics stories read by Morag Lindsay. The head of the UK's armed forces says Russia has already strategically lost the war in Ukraine and is now a more diminished power. Admiral Sir Tony Radican said Vladimir Putin had lost 25% of Russia's land power for only tiny gains. An ambitious rewilding project which aims to create a nature recovery area of more than half a million acres is being recommended for Global UN flagship status by the Scottish and UK governments. The Africa Highlands project has a 30-year plan which would restore woodland and peatland areas along with riverside habitats. Former First Minister Alex Salmond has said personal differences with Nicola Sturgeon are insignificant compared to the national cause of Scotland becoming independent. Mr Salmond says he would not let their personal difficulties stand in the way of any independence campaign. Thanks, Morag. Now, you'll have noticed a wee mention in those headlines of Nicola Sturgeon and Alex Salmond, which brings us right back to the start of this week in Scottish politics. The First Minister had us all round to her house in Edinburgh to make a big announcement. Independence is back on the agenda. In reality, is it so straightforward? The DC Thompson politics team spent Monday listening to the Butte House speech, which featured Nicola Sturgeon and Green Party co-leader Patrick Harvey. There was a glossy pamphlet and lots of bar charts, but was there any substance? Are we any further forward? Derek Healy, you've been paying attention to this from before 2014. What's what's left to answer? Why, why are we still talking about this? Well, there's, there's sort of everything left to answer, isn't there, really? I think that was a big... Feeling coming out of this announcement, um, the, the the paper that was published by Nicola Sturgeon was basically comparing the UK with sort of in, small independent nations and saying, I mean, wouldn't it be lovely if we were a bit more like them? But there was no real substance or answers to some of the big kind of questions that have been lingering since 2014. So things like pensions, currency, EU membership, defence and security, all those kind of big questions that coming out of 2014, there was a criticism that not enough information was was put out there. There's still not really any answers to those questions yet. Nicola Sturgeon says that we are going to have some papers along the line. She couldn't tell us quite when, but um, reading between the lines, I think possibly before the end of this year, uh, that will set out some of the answers to those questions finally. Um, but for now, we don't know when the referendum's going to be. There's a suggestion from Angus Robertson it might be October. Um, we don't know the answers to those questions. And probably more importantly than all of those details... Uh, Nicola Sturgeon said that she's going to forge a way ahead um, regardless of whether they have backing from Westminster for another referendum but there's no answer on how that's actually going to work. Um, Are we talking wildcat referendum? What are we talking about? And I think that's the biggest question we've yet to get an answer to. Yeah, Um, Angus Robertson you mentioned there sort of going a little bit further than Nicola Sturgeon because she wants or says she wants a referendum in 2023 which is fast approaching um, and he kind of suggested October. So, you know, a little over a year to go, um, which is not long when we still have those papers to come out, like currency and pensions. So presumably over summer, um, you know, and we'll, we'll get talking about independence a lot more and about how and and when rather than should it happen, which I suppose is the scene setter that um, the Scottish government wants, isn't it? Like you say, there's a, there's a lot of unanswered questions. So 
Justin, um, you you know you, you took a bit of a closer look at that, and you can you can go onto our, our uh, politics web pages on the Courier and PNJ and read this as well. I mean, what what kind of things are we are we are we, are we needing to look at in terms of getting a legal route? to independence. So Nicola Sturgeon, as we well know, wants to hold a referendum. However, obviously Boris Johnson strongly opposes it. Um, the Westminster government is firmly against the referendum. So the SNP would obviously want a Section 30. What's a Section 30? So a Section 30 is, I suppose in simple terms, an order which would essentially allow the Scottish Parliament or Scottish government to mandate for a referendum. Without that, you know, the Scottish Parliament do not have the powers on their own to mandate for a referendum, so they need that permission from Westminster. What they could perhaps seek to do as an alternative is go to the courts, so they would take that to the UK's Supreme Court and argue that, you know, they have a mandate to hold a referendum, that they should be allowed to. How they would rule is uncertain. We've seen um, a senior civil servant, or, or sorry, a senior former civil servant um, say that they reckon the Scottish Government would perhaps not get permission so it's not an easy one. And obviously Nicola Sturgeon was talking earlier in the week as if you know a referendum is definitely going to happen. However, so far, there is no guarantee of that. And a critic might say that the SNP or the Scottish Government or however you want to put it are not necessarily any further forward in wanting to hold a referendum. You know, until they either submit that Section 30 request to Westminster or until they've gone to the courts, they're not really any further forward than they were, say, three or four years ago when they wanted a referendum and of course they didn't get one at the time. Well we're talking about the, the sort of unanswered questions on all those the, the, the big topics. Um the, the, there was a there was a document that they put out and like you said Derek there's there's plenty of comparison pieces but of course there's one country that was missing from all of those comparisons and that that's Scotland which is noteworthy in itself the, the whole things about how the UK as they as they see it doesn't perform well compared to other countries but and among those countries there's, there's quite a there's a broad spread, isn't there? I mean, you've got Norway, but uh, Switzerland and Belgium, places like this, and and where we are compared with them in in GDP, inequality, things like that. But uh, I suppose the confusing thing is which policies and which politics do you cherry pick from that? Can can Scotland be a social democratic state or a oil state or a you know right of centre, very open, free market state? I mean, how how do people put Scotland in that? How does that, what does it say about what an independent Scotland could be like rather than just comparing? I think that's a question, isn't it? What does it actually say about what an independent Scotland would look like? Uh, as you say, this is a comparison of, of different countries uh, with Scotland not actually being involved. I saw people kind of quite gamely trying to, basically the kind of usual suspects, kind of picking it apart and, and making arguments, but sort of what really is the point in doing that? I mean, Obviously, the SNP are going to look to small independent countries and say, we'd quite like to be like that. But, you know, it's it's looking at Spain and saying it's lovely and sunny. Wouldn't it be great if Scotland was sunnier? Yeah, it would. But how do you actually get there? And um, I think that's what we're waiting to see from these, these future papers. I mean, you might be quite cynical and say that, you know, the SNP are going to have a conference coming up later this year after not having an in-person one for quite a long time. Um, it makes it a lot easier if you start to have some of these scene setters and, and papers coming out and a big announcement about the date that they're pushing for. Whether or not it actually happens, um, the fact you can go into a conference and start making these big vows um, is probably quite helpful if you're going to have all your membership in front of you for the first time in a long time. Yeah, and if Angus Robertson's timetable is sort of 
is is their thinking, then they'll be able to stand up and say, this time next year we'll have a referendum. So, exactly. But you know, we still have um, the Conservative government at Westminster standing resolutely in the way of all of that. Adele, you you cover the northeast a lot um, day to day, and there's quite a, a strong conservative vote there there was a very strong pro-union vote there what kind of reaction is there from from the other side to the independence argument that you've been hearing uh, i think there'll be a much tougher task up here than say obviously the more uh, fertile ground they have in places like glasgow and dundee i mean we obviously took a look back at the 2014 results and it's obviously a mixed picture because, as you can imagine, the PNJ covers a very wide area. But um, there were some really strong votes against. So Aberdeen was more than fifty-eight percent rejected independence, and I think that went up to over sixty percent in Aberdeenshire. Obviously, you've got the. I know there yeah. were questions in the press conference about oh, from yourself actually around oil and gas and what will their kind of policies in an independent Scotland be on that? And I think that is bound to impact any future independence referendum. Um, obviously, last time, yeah. Alex Salmon said that revenues would be used uh, to fund parts of an independent Scotland. So now there's there's been obviously such a sea change in how the government is treating oil and gas that I think people will potentially be sceptical over over what, what kind of role will oil and gas have, and if they work in oil and gas, they might have um, might feel more nervous about voting for independence. And um, so, it's definitely quite yeah. an interesting case study, I guess, to look up here at, at, at that. Yeah, veterans of twenty fourteen will remember that the big white paper that came out, which explained the Scottish government's prospectus for independence, they didn't at the time say that the oil was a mainstay of the economy. They said it was a bonus. But then it was only afterwards that they sort of realised, well, we have to have a, a sharper look at this because the oil price crashed, didn't it? And they said, yes, maybe it was baked in. So if the oil at a high price was baked into the 2014 prospectus and now we're shifting away from oil and gas, it is a problem. And of course, you've got the Greens in government as well now. Um, they're not going to want to have a, a, an independent Scotland, you know, pumping oil out of the sea to keep itself afloat. So... Big questions. And of course, one of the, the senior politicians in that sort of north and northeast area is Douglas Ross. Um, he obviously didn't want to waste any time tackling Nicola Sturgeon on this issue when First Minister's questions came around a couple of days after. So on Thursday this week, um, we listened to uh, Nicola Sturgeon responding to Douglas Ross. And we can have a little listen to how a bit of a flavour of that just now. The next item of business is First Minister's questions, and at question number one, I call Douglas Ross. Thank you very much, Presiding Officer. The SNP government have said they want to hold another divisive independence referendum in October next year. But Nicola Sturgeon can't even say if ferries will float by then. She won't have closed the school attainment gap by then. She won't have returned NHS services to normal by then. And she won't have cleared the court backlogs by then. So, First Minister, why should all these pressing issues play second fiddle to another divisive independence referendum next year? First Minister. Well, firstly, Presiding Officer, let me uh, welcome Douglas Ross's line of questioning. It is at least an implicit, if not yet an explicit, recognition that yes, people in Scotland will have their say on independence. 
in line, in line with the democratic mandate that this Parliament has. Um, second point, presiding officer, is that the case for independence is not distinct or separate from the big challenges that Scotland, in common with countries across the world, is facing right now. Instead, independence is part of the solution to those challenges. It's about how we equip ourselves better as a country to meet those challenges and fulfil our potential. There you go. So there was, um, it, it got a lot more fiery as well as, as the day went on, but uh, Douglas Ross pointing out quite a lot of domestic issues there, which... Um, you know, we've been covering at length. There's a lot of problems being stored up. I mean, a lot of it's to do with the pandemic, of course, but the health service is under strain. Nicola Sturgeon has for years been saying that education was her priority. Um, but Douglas was was Douglas Ross was uh, kind of taking a little trip through all of the problems in the entry that he wants to focus on. So what, I mean, what does it say then about the, is, there a, is this a distraction? I mean, does anyone have any views on what this is saying about... Uh, the, the government trying to get away from a domestic agenda? I mean, I think the thing is, the SNP have always been in favour of independence, and I'm sure if they're pursuing a referendum, then they're going to have dedicated civil servants or dedicated people working on that. So you're still going to have people focusing on health and education and all those departments. So I don't know if it's a distraction. I think, I think in a way, sometimes this becomes a strange argument because the Conservatives and Labour to agree, instead of just attacking the SNP because, say, they believe they're incompetent in government, will almost say instead that they're incompetent because they're pursuing a referendum. But you, you think for them it would almost be easier just to stick to the argument that, well, the SNP aren't good in government because ministers aren't good enough, because our policies aren't good enough. But it's interesting how all sides, whether it be the pro-independence or anti-independence side, all tend to kind of come back to independence as a central argument. You know, it was interesting yesterday that Douglas Ross chose to start on the independence question, you know, in a week where there were other policies that he could have focused on, you know, but he kind of grouped all these kind of areas together to instead ask the question about independence. And I suppose from the Conservative viewpoint, that's maybe just to kind of try and rally up their voters and just show that they're, you know, strong in the union and that they're determined to be against independence. But I do think that a government can surely pursue a referendum while still pursuing a domestic agenda at the same time, if it is well run. Well, you, you mentioned um, if it was well run, and one of the things that Douglas Ross was talking about there was the ferries. Um, that, I mean, if there's any reminder of the, the long-term problems that needed to be to be brought back into Nicola Sturgeon's vision, it was, uh, it was the, the site of Jim McCall, who used to wholeheartedly back um, uh, the SNP, at least, in, in independence. Um, not so happy now, to recap a little bit, Jim McCall, of course, owned the Ferguson Marine Yard um, on the Clyde. A couple of Calmac ships were supposed to get built there, and they're still there, and they're still not finished. He was back in Parliament today. What, what was he saying? Well, um, Jim McCall was giving evidence to the Public Audit Committee and essentially giving his side of the story um, regarding the ferry scandal. His argument are that, you know, CMAL, who kind of, I believe, were responsible for kind of procuring the kind of ferries, if that is the correct way of putting it, um, did not want Ferguson's having the deal. Um, he says that the specifications of the deal were changed afterwards. So he was very much defending the staff at Ferguson's and he puts the blame onto the government. A lot of what he was saying is kind of already known and has, you know, been in public before. And what was perhaps his most interesting claim this time, which was fresh information, was 
He was claiming that due to the ferries that are being built using liquefied natural gas, um, he's saying they're going to be environmentally unfriendly, that they could kind of emit toxic fumes into the air and that they will essentially be obsolete upon completion. That's an interesting detail because obviously this is a scandal that has rumbled on. The SNP will obviously hope that once those boats are built and once they're out on the water, that will be the end of it and that they can move on. I believe it's 2023 is supposed to be the completion date. But according to Jim McCall, that's not going to be the end of it. But essentially, these vessels are not going to be fit for purpose. They're not going to be up to scratch. And it just seems to be a scandal that is just not going to go away. And yeah, Jim McCall obviously very much blames the government. And it's fascinating because he was once a key ally or, you know, had a very strong working relationship is perhaps yeah. the best way to put it. But it, yeah, it just does not seem to be going away. Yeah, um, and they've been sitting there for years. We, we, you've been compiling a list. It's getting longer and longer. We've got um, sort of a point by point blow of how many problems have been storing up on that, which of course is sitting there on the website for all to read. And it is up to what eight points now, eight points that undermine this whole. Yeah, and it very much goes from the from the ridiculous to you know the so go you know goes from we don't know necessarily who signed off on it or we didn't know who signed off on it at the time to ridiculous things like windows were painted on for the boat's launch just to make it seem more presentable. So it's it's a very varied list. Yeah. But it's not all bad news in the in the world of, of uh, ferries. Derek, you've been you've been looking at the other side of the country. There's a perhaps a little bit more of a success story coming down the, the fourth. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's interesting just in, in, in terms of talking about the independence thing. I think going into you know that late this year, next year, if there is a referendum, I think the the kind of arguments going to be between whether independence is a a distraction from policy or whether it's an opportunity. And I think we've seen this a little bit in the ferries kind of conversation because you've had um, you know the the trouble with the woes over the ferries being given as an example of the kind of thing that the SNP should be focusing on. But at the same time, you've had this push and fife um, coming from Douglas Chapman to try and bring back a, a dedicated ferry link and the kind of opportunities that that could, could provide. And um, this is very much being framed as a sort of, you know, isn't this a great thing for Scotland, but also going forward, could this be a real kind of benefit in terms of trade if Scotland becomes independent? Great links with the EU, that that, that kind of idea. Mm -hmm. um, so this, this is looking as if um, we've got two major companies now on board. One of them is DFDS, um, which is the shipping firm that were involved previously in running a route from Recife to Zeebrugge in Belgium. Um, they have signed a statement of intent saying they are going to be looking at this very in, in a great deal of detail trying to make this happen they're trying to get customers on board um, but I mean it sounds from speaking to people close to the deal it sounds very very promising um, they are looking at a start date as early as early next year 20, early 2023 sorry um, it seems to be very much moving in the right direction and this is something that's been campaigned for and fought for basically since it stopped um, I think people see Real opportunities, particularly for Recife, um, and the, and the, the whole of the fourth of fourth, basically in this. So yeah, it could be potentially very good news. Yeah, I mean the, the nearest um, passenger ferry link to Scotland at the moment is Newcastle, which is DFDS, mm -hmm. isn't it? It goes to Amsterdam uh, or, or nearby anyway, and um, it's it's popular. Um, it, and maybe that was part of the problem, I suppose, with the Recife passenger link that um, maybe people would just go to Newcastle. It's probably it's closer, a bit cheaper, maybe, but. The freight idea is the first one to come off 
um, the, the the proposal. So I guess there's a there's potential there, and it it could be built from there. And I suppose it, it also leads into free ports and the only wider discussion about how we're going to be improving connections and trade and things like that. But one of the one of the the, the people in the background of this deal, uh, you'll have to remind me his name, but he, he's got an interesting background too because he's already had some success elsewhere and again it's it's got a bit of a brexit theme what what's the what's the chap called again so there's a guy called Derek Sloan um so he previously was the managing director of Norfolk Line um who also were involved in running this route and he, I think he's got a great interest in and in, uh, ferry links to Europe and things like that I think that's kind of his area of expertise so he has set up a new company um, who are the company that have got involved with DFDS um, and, and running this. He is going to be, so basically DFDS are going to be operating the route if it all comes together and he's going to be he's going to be working in more of a sort of a consulting role for them basically. But his background, um, which is quite interesting, is, is that he's been involved in setting up some of these ferry links from Ireland, which have been hailed as a, as a great success and uh, there's been just loads of them being set up and um, having lots of kind of positive benefits for the local economy and, 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 and towns and things that these that these are sailing from. Um, so he's going to be working in a kind of consulting role in this and um, getting very involved. He's been he's been a guy kind of crunching the numbers, I believe, and uh, helping to make that sort of business case. What I hear is that they're looking at quite substantial potential customers, both in Scotland and in Belgium, um, to be involved in this. And I think that's, that's, where, that's where things are at now, is getting those people really concretely on board for this because um, you can't do that until you have a, kind of a plan basically in operation uh, I know that Neil Hanvey who is the other, he's, he's the other Fife MP who's been really pushing for this in recent months um, he's asked for a meeting with the Transport Secretary in Scotland um, he wants to meet with um, senior figures involved in this and basically if there's anything that the Scottish Government can do to smooth the way and make this happen, he wants to make sure that's that's being done um, so I think there's, there's there's more to come in this in the coming months about some of the finer points, um, but the the message I got from this was very much that this looks extremely positive. This looks about as close to being done as you can really get without being done. Some positive news there on on the ferries at least. Um, it's just a an about turn of of uh, subject matter here, but we're going to have to go back to our long standing friend accountability in politics now. Um, we've long talked about Boris Johnson and his stewardship of the of the country. Um, he seems to be Teflon, nothing sticks at all. But it's not just happening at the top of government. Um, Derek, you've been looking at a, a, a very local um, example of how this accountability in politics is becoming an issue at council level too. This is a bit of a a bit of a winding story. This one, so I'm hoping that you can sort of take us through. The life and times of Derek Wan. Yeah, so this is this is Angus councillor Derek Wan, um, who is unmasked as uh, running an anonymous troll account, um, which was fashioned after a character on the Netflix series Bridgerton. Um, he was using it to dole out pretty nasty abuse at members of the public and um, leading politicians. Uh, it was described by by his opposition or his political rivals, I suppose, as. Some of the comments were described as misogynistic and transphobic. Um, so he was unmasked and he was he repeatedly denied being involved until he really was nailed on it by having just loads and loads of background about how he was linked to the account, his mobile number was set up. Finally, 
he, he comes clean and says, yeah, it was me all along. I did it. Um, so he's been up at a Standards Commission hearing this week, um, and our colleague Graham Brown was, was kind of covering that. What he basically found is that he breached the Code of Conduct, um, but that he's entitled to enhanced protection of freedom expre- of expression hmm. as a politician. So they found he made a number of disrespectful and discourteous comments that were directed against fellow councillors and members of the public. Uh, Derek Wan himself consider, didn't consider that he'd been disrespectful, which is quite a position to take. But the panel said that the fact that he denied being behind it and that he has since deleted the account suggests otherwise. Uh, and they said the only exp- explanation uh, was that he wanted to indulge in commentary and conduct that he would otherwise not have been able to do under the rules, the code of conduct that applies to politicians. Yeah. So it's an open and shut case, surely. <laughs> well, you, well, you'd think so, isn't, wouldn't you? I mean, I, I think if we're being if we're being totally honest here, well, let, let me let me preface this by saying that Derek Wan's been re-elected, um, just re-elected a few weeks ago. So you can't really. I, I don't know how much the argument holds water to say that he should be you know removed as a counter or anything like that. I don't. I, I, fair enough. I, I don't think that really stands up. But it's it's a nonsense, isn't it, to 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 say that you can have freedom of expression. Free, you know, you've got that right from an anonymous account where you go on and have a go at members of the public who dare to question you and your public account. Yeah. Um, you can say things that, you know, clearly are unacceptable. I, I don't think that's a dispute. I mean, that's just what the panel found. What he said was unacceptable for, for a councillor. So they're not disputing any of that. But what they are saying is that all of that's overwritten by a right to say whatever you want, pretty much. Um, but I mean, uh, doesn't that just apply to every politician then? I, I don't really know. I don't really know where the the line is because if if you're saying it's discourteous and disrespectful, um, if you're saying that he tried to hide what he was doing, you understand all of that stuff, and that's what your finding is. Then what kind of behaviour along that line would would be wouldn't be okay then? It's it's pretty, it's, much, pretty much anything you want. It seems like. Yeah, it, there's um, it's it's crazy when you look at the different standards people are held to. The the public gets the impression that you're not allowed to call a liar a liar if you're in the Houses of Parliament. You get thrown out for that, but you can be a councillor and, and use an anonymous account to dole out abuse or whatever, um, and then clearly accept that it wasn't right and and delete it. Uh, Boris Johnson um, and others can can have parties in lockdown. There can be fines dished out, but but everyone still sails on through. What what else? There are other examples as well that we've been covering here. I mean, what what else? What else can you can you show about the the different standards that people are being held to? Well, yeah, I mean, you, you only need to look at. Um, so we had another case in Dundee of Siobhan Tolland, who um, she was the one who talked about nine eleven being an inside job orchestrated by the by politicians and the media, and talked about shouting abuse in the street uh, at the Pope as well about ten years ago. Um, and that was all uncovered before before she was then elected as a councillor. Um, I think you've got. I mean, uh, I think parties are. There's a, there's a question, obviously, of basically it's up to the public who they want to elect. And you know, we, we as journalists can expose that what the, what's been said and and let the public know, and then it's up to them. But I think there is also responsibility in terms of political parties because let's face it, we know that in some areas you could put a rosette in a pig and people would go out and vote for it. Um, it doesn't really matter what they've done as long as it's the sort of party they support or, mm. or maybe more importantly, it's not the party that they oppose. They, they, yeah. they will go and vote for someone regardless of what they've done. So there is a responsibility there, I think, for parties. Adele, you, you know, there's been so many examples of this and yeah, like Derek just said, people keep voting for, for, for people. So... 
is it that people don't care or um, is there just this sort of feeling that it's politics and people just, you know, there's no accountability? I mean, what does it say about the state of politics? Yeah, it's a, a, I was just thinking there, you know, I'm working on a story at the moment about um, an Aberdeen MP that is, is speaking out about some of the abuse she receives, um, which is of a much more severe nature. But uh, yeah, it just had me thinking there that it's interesting that a lot of politicians are rightfully speaking up and, and other people in other spheres, I guess journalists as well, get their fair share about the kind of discussion, debate that happens online and the level of abuse. And it just it seems a bit strange that yet we see an example here of how actual uh, local politicians and local councillors are able to indulge in that behaviour. And it makes you think, how does that, um, what sort of example... You know, on one hand, you're calling for people to have a more respectful debate and a more kind of positive politics. But on the other hand, you see an example like that and think, well, it's not just coming from completely anonymous people who, like members of the public, it's also coming from um, actual elected representatives. And I don't know, I think it's probably, as Derek says, that people seem to prioritise the party that they want to vote for, potentially. Or maybe, as you say, they just think it's the sort of cut and thrust of politics, and um, they don't they don't take it so seriously. But it's, it's a strange one because there is all this kind of wider discussion, um, as I say. And I know at the moment it's just this week the MPs are discussing the online safety bill in the Commons, and one of the moves there is to sort of look at whether people can block anonymous accounts if they want to on Twitter and things like that. So. It's interesting that in this example, there's obviously someone being allowed to be anonymous and run this account and yet has been found to have got off with it. So it's a strange one. Well, I think that brings us to the a special moment again in the in the show. It's time to dole out a little prize. And I think there's no guessing who's going to get this week's Stush of the Week. Lady Whistledown, you are the Stush of the Week. Stush of the Week. And there we go. That's it for this week. Thanks to Del Merson, Justin Bowie, Derek Healy, producer Marvin McIntyre, and of course to you for listening. We'll be back next week with more. But until then, and after then, pick up or log on to The Courier, The Press and Journal, and all of our news brands so that you can be better briefed. The Stushy is the politics podcast from DC Thompson, designed to help you understand the implications of what happens in Holyrood, Westminster and our communities so that you can be better briefed. Don't miss an episode by following The Stushy today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. And if you know folks like you who want to understand politics in Scotland a little better, suggest they tune in or follow Stushy Scott on Twitter and Facebook. And stay even more up to date on local and Scottish news by subscribing to The Courier or Press and Journal, where you can get one month of unlimited access for just £1. Check the episode notes for details and terms.